0: Thanks Warwick. Morning everybody. How are we this morning? Thanks so much for your prayers. Um, my, You probably have heard in the notices my dad had a bit of an accident this week and so um, he fell about five meters from his balcony at home and um, broke his spine in a few places. So uh, the latest on that is that he has had um, back surgery, spinal surgery and we're waiting for him to wake up from his coma and we'll see if he's got any leg movement. So that's where we're at at the moment. Um, but thank you for your prayers and, and offers of support that mean a lot to us as a family. Uh, we're thankful to the Lord for his uh, care to us in this time as well. So we're looking, we've been working through a series um, out of Through the Bible, Through the Year, John Stott's book. Uh, and this week we're looking at Jesus' final week. That's where we're studying. Um, we're going to be looking at uh, the passage Matthew twenty six thirty six to 46, if you're playing along at home, it, so the Jesus, uh, it's about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So these events basically took place after, um, before Jesus' crucifixion, um, but after he's kind of rode into Jerusalem uh, in glory and excitement. Um, and so we're going to look at Matthew 26, 30, 36 to 46. I might pray before we read. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that we can come together now and look into your word and share around your word. God, I pray by your spirit that you would uh, give me clarity of mind. Father, help us to hear what it is that you would have us say. Help me to get out of the way so that you can be seen more clearly. Might you be honoured, might you be glorified through this time we spend together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Matthew twenty six thirty six to 46. It says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. His kindle went to a weird page. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. I really, I love this passage of Scripture. I think within these few lines, we just see such emotion. And and the candour with which Jesus, uh, his human experience is betrayed to us, I think is amazing. Verse 37, rather, talks about how Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. Verse 38, Jesus admits that his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. We see in this passage the mystery of the incarnation of God made man up close. Jesus is expressing human emotions that I think we can all no doubt relate to, even if not to the intensity of Jesus. In the face of an overwhelming task, Jesus is sorrowful and troubled. And in response to this sorrow, he makes the candid request, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. In scripture, the cup can refer to a literal cup, one that you would drink out of, but it can also uh, metaphorically refer to something that someone experiences. And so in Psalm 16.5, for example, David wrote that the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. He's saying that the Lord is his own. He's saying that he's taken the Lord into his life in the same way that we might take a literal drink from a cup. In a way that it kind of becomes part of us. And so in speaking here of the cup, Jesus is praying, if it's possible, let this portion pass from me. Let this thing that's that's going to happen, uh, let this thing, what's coming, not happen to me. Now, the most most obvious thing that Jesus is asking um, to pass by him is the cross. In a few moments, he's going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies and he's going to be killed on the cross and he's going to suffer great physical agony. But Jesus' death wasn't just physical torment. It was also emotional and spiritual torment. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, who did not sin, takes on our sins, the sins of the world for our sake, so that we might become righteous. That is heavy, spiritually speaking. We tend to make a lot about Jesus' physical suffering um, in the world in which we live. You can see through uh, the the movie, The Passion of the Christ and things like it, that we we put Jesus' physical suffering directly in front of us in shocking detail. And I in no way mean to denigrate the physical suffering, but Jesus' suffering was more fully orbed than that. It was physical, emotional, and spiritual agony. And indeed, I think we can say that the spiritual agony was the worst of them all. Jesus' cry from the cross was about his father's forsaking him, not about his physical agony. And so with all of this in mind, knowing what was ahead for him, Jesus in his humanity was sorrowful. He was troubled to the point of death. And he prays a prayer that I think we can probably all relate to, the prayer request that says, God, might this not happen? Might you grant me favour, Lord? Might you heal this person or that person? Might the test results come back negative? Basically, we all pray at one time or another, God, might my will be done? And I don't think it's sinful to pray that necessarily. Um, Philippians 4.6 urges us to make our requests known to God. God loves us and he wants to hear and what our heart's desires are. There's nothing wrong with the prayer request that says, God, might my will be done. But Jesus doesn't finish there, does he? Instead, he prays that most dangerous of all prayers, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will despite his fear, despite his trepidation, Jesus uh, still had an open heart to what the Father had for him. And so even while his uh, will as a human being may have been to spare himself this wrath that was before him, he was still open to hearing and obeying what the Father's will is. And I think this is a tussle that we need to take seriously in the way that we pray and in the way that we understand God. Whilst God does want to hear our uh, requests, we can't let our requests be the be-all and end-all. We can't demand God to do this or to do that. This is the key issue with what's called the Word of Faith movement, where they teach that whatever you pray, if you truly believe and if you speak out with enough authority, you will receive it. But this sort of man-centred theology simply doesn't line up with Scripture. It doesn't line up with what we know about God. Even as we present our request to God, we need to be willing to say in the end, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, Lord. I have a friend who was um, praying for a guy in his church one time. He was praying for healing for this, for this man. And he prayed, as he always does, Lord, we ask that you would heal this person, but whatever happens, might your will be done. And in response to that, another uh, member of the church kind of pushed him out of the way and jumped in, and he began to kind of pray uh, in faith, I think is the terminology for this person's healing. He began to claim healing in Jesus' name. And so he budged in and made it clear that he felt uh, that my friend's prayer request was not right. He had a problem with the fact that my friend was unwilling to pray with certainty and conviction, instead opting to pray, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. But it just doesn't make any sense to pray any other way. It just doesn't make any sense to pray that, uh, or to expect that every prayer we pray will happen. We can't pray with that sort of certainty and conviction all the time. The only form of prayer that makes any sense theologically is prayer that is in the end submissive to God and his will, not ours. And that's that's the example that Jesus sets for us in the passage today. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So how do we know what God's will is? I think if we look at the passage, it seems like Jesus kind of was innately able to tell what the Father's will is in the garden, but it's not, that's not generally how it works for us today. God can, I, I believe God can speak directly to our hearts if he desires, but often we get kind of caught up waiting on God, waiting on God to reveal his will for us, when actually he has already revealed his will through his word, the scripture. And I'm not saying that the scriptures have the answer to every question. We can't look to Philippians 4 about what we should have for lunch today. But we also can't simply say, well, the Bible doesn't directly address this or that issue, and so it, it doesn't matter. If we have a thorough understanding of what the scriptures teach us, we can take principles and we can take lessons from them and apply them to our daily lives. I once knew a guy that was, um, was a drug addict, he's passed away, unfortunately. Um, but he argued that because the Bible didn't say anything about drugs, then it didn't matter that that he used drugs. The the Bible doesn't say anything about it, so he figured it didn't matter. But the Bible clearly teaches in 1 Corinthians 6 that the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and so we should glorify God with our bodies. It clearly teaches in Galatians 5.21 that uh, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, which no doubt include drugs, will mean that we do not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we can probably all almost readily agree that the Bible tells us we shouldn't do drugs. I think that's probably something we can all agree on. I I hope it is. But what are the things in our lives that the Bible similarly speaks indirectly to that we just choose to ignore? Maybe we even say the same thing as the drug a- drug a- drug addicts. Well, the Bible doesn't really address that, so uh, I don't have to worry about it. Maybe it's the type of movies and TV shows that we choose to watch. Maybe it's the way that we choose to drive our car because we have road rage or because we have uh, incess- we incessantly speed. Maybe it's the way that we spend our money. We we spend it lavishly on our own uh, pursuits instead of uh, on things that were instead of being generous toward God and the things that he cares about. We ought to let the word of God uh, dwell so richly in our hearts and minds that it informs all of our decisions and indeed all of our prayer requests. At Outlook, one of our values is prayer, and we say of that value, we seek to pray for the salvation of lost people, as well as personal and church family needs, realising that prayer is an attitude of dependence upon God and the active alignment of our will with his will. And so as we pray, we ought to ask God to actively align our will with his will as it's revealed through the word, as it's revealed through the scriptures. Jesus finishes praying the first time. Um, He comes back. He gives his disciples an earful for being asleep. And he goes away and prays a second time in verse 42. But an interesting thing has happened. Jesus' prayer has changed slightly. He's now using using a negative adverb. I'm going to show you what I mean by that. The NIV draws it out best. It says... My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. And so at first he prayed, If it is possible, take this cup away from me. And now he prays, If it is not possible, then your will be done. Additionally, we see that really the Father's will is the only one that rates a mention now. In the first prayer request, Jesus suggests that his human will was to avoid the cup. But it just doesn't get a mention in the second prayer request. And then verse 44, we we read that he went away and prayed the same thing again. Now... I don't want to make too much of this because I know that uh, there are people who will disagree with my exegesis of this passage. But I think there's something exciting about the way Jesus' prayer seems to progress here. Whilst at first he, he, he prays and he shares his will, he requests that, if at all possible, the cup be taken away. In the second and the third prayers, he seems to have recognised that indeed the Father's will is that he would drink the cup, And so somehow it seems that as Jesus spends time with God the Father in prayer, his human will seems to align better with God's will, with the Father's will. We have to be careful how we frame that. I'm not necessarily saying that Jesus has changed his mind. uh, But what I do think we see at play here is what Hebrews 4.15 means when it says that Jesus is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus' human will was that the cup would pass by him. And so he comes to the Father in prayer asking that the cup would be taken away. He's tempted by the possibility that he might avoid the cross, but he didn't let that temptation control him. Instead, he let the Father's will control him. As he comes to the Father, he seeks his will, and the Father's will is revealed to him such that eventually he could pray, if it cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And as we pray, we can have a similar experience to Jesus. I think when we come to God with an open heart, And in faithful prayer, when we let the word of God dwell richly in our hearts and minds, we can experience this kind of active alignment of our will with God's will. Romans 12.2 is a pretty well-known verse. It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And I want to suggest that one of the ways that we can experience the renewal of our minds, one of the ways that we can test and discern the will of God, is by coming before God in faithful prayer. Even if at first we pray, God, my will be done. Or we, can come, we can then kind of come to realise that God's will is different to ours, and we need to pray then, as Jesus does, well, your will be done, Lord. And thinking again about Romans 12 too, as we come to God in prayers, we seek to align our will and His, we are indeed testing and discerning the, the will of God. We are discerning, testing and discerning His will, His good and acceptable and perfect will. And so there's this concept here of kind of change and alignment in will through prayer. And we can back this up, I think, as we look through other passages of Scripture about prayer. There's over 650 prayers in the Bible, I found out this week, which is very interesting. 2 Corinthians 7.14, for example, says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Deuteronomy 4 7 talks of the great blessing it is to be able to come to God in prayer. For it asks there, What nation is there that has a God so near to us, so near to it rather, as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him, or as the NIV puts it, whenever we pray to him? As we come to God in prayer, we are necessarily humbled before him. As we draw near to God in prayer, he draws near to us. God loves us. Our, our requests, our prayer requests are heard from heaven, but we have to realise that God is not a genie. We don't get three wishes and we can't kind of expect that each thing we pray would come to pass just as we would like. But we can expect that if we come to God with an open heart and in faithful prayer, our will will align with his will. And his will will be be revealed to us. One more thing that we learn from the text today is that prayer not only changes us, it doesn't just kind of align our will with God's will, but it also empowers us. Verses 45 to 46 say, Then he came to the disciples, that's Jesus, and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So the whole point of this kind of night in prayer that Jesus spends was to prepare him for what's to come next, was to prepare him for his crucifixion. And as he thinks about the pain, as he thinks about the angst that the cross will bring, he feels sorrowful and he feels overwhelmed. And so what does he do? Well, verse 39 says, he fell on his face and he prayed. Wouldn't it be great if that's how we all responded in situations of sorrow and trouble? If when we felt overwhelmed with sorrow, if our first reaction was to fall on our face and pray. Psalm 55.22 says, Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Hebrews 4.16 tells us, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As Jesus felt burdened, as he fell with his face uh, and prayed before God, we can see that the Father has sustained him. The Father gave him such mercy in his time of need that once it was time for him to go into the hands of his enemies, he's able to say to his disciples, "'Rise!' Let us go, here comes my betrayer. As we come to God in prayer, he not only hears us and changes us, but he also strengthens us. I think this is why Jesus could say to his disciples in verse 41, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. In our weakness, temptation can seem insurmountable. But Jesus tells us to watch and pray that we may not enter into them. And so through spending time in God's presence, through spending time in prayer, God strengthens us so that we might overcome whatever temptations, whatever challenges come our way. Matthew 26, 36 to 46 is a beautiful passage of Scripture because we see Jesus come before the Father in prayer, overwhelmed with sorrow. And we learn by Christ's example that prayer is powerful. Powerful. As we pray, God hears us and God changes us. Through the interaction of prayer and His Word, He aligns our will with His will. And through prayer, God strengthens us both to overcome the hard things in life and to overcome the temptations that we face. And so, do we treat prayer with the respect that it deserves? Are we willing to fall on our face before God when we face struggles or when we face temptations? Jesus shows us that we ought to do so. And when we do, God will lift us up and help us. He will strengthen us and empower us. And he will help us to overcome for his glory just as Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks that you are powerful. And we thank you, Lord, that as we come to you in prayer, you share something of that with us. God, you empower us through your Spirit. Lord, your Spirit doesn't just tell us the will of God, it compels us to do the will of God, and it helps us to do the will of God. God, we thank you for the grace that you give us, the grace to endure, the grace to avoid temptation. But Lord, we know that we don't always grab a hold of that. Father, we don't always come to you in prayer. We don't always fall with our face to the ground. Lord, sometimes we like to roll around in the mire. Sometimes we like to try and do it ourselves. Father, humble us before you, we pray. Help us to come to you in prayer, to seek your will, to do your will. Empower us to do it, we pray. Might you be honoured. Might you be glorified. Might people see your power through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.